welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Wenn ich mein Leben noch einmal leben könnte, würde ich die gleichen Fehler machen. Aber ein bisschen früher, damit ich mehr davon habe. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and this week I'm not joined by my co-host, Simon. See you later, suckers, Maddox. As regular listeners will know, Simon is off on holiday, and by my watch, he should be knees deep in sausage rolls and pints of real ale. Personally, it's his wife I feel sorry for. No matter, I'm here to keep you all entertained, but thankfully I'm not alone, because this week, dear listeners, this week we have a very special guest. I'm going to have to keep my history fanboy nature in check today, as I have someone very special joining me. I'm really excited to welcome to the show historian and journalist Katja Hoyer. Katja is a visiting research fellow at King's College of London, fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a columnist for the Washington Post, contributor to The Spectator and Unheard, and co-host of the Tommy's and Jerry's podcast alongside the rather lovely Oliver Moody of The Times. And many of you may also have heard Katja on the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast with Al Murray and James Holland. Whew. To top it all off, Katja is also the author of the frankly excellent Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. What a resume. I, I thought I was busy. Um, welcome, Katja. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm mildly offended that Oliver gets to be lovely and I don't. Oh, I'm sorry. I would have, if I'd known, you know, I would have, I would have put that in. I didn't realise. I've only spoken to him once on the phone, but uh, he's got a very good radio voice. I think, um, as as do you, of course. Well, he is he is the glamorous assistant in this <laughs> partnership. So I got that uh, definite vibe from the podcast. But yeah, I, I did ask you the sort of very uh, informal how you're doing, and a lot of my German friends have sort of fallen foul of the how are you doing question, and that uh, they end up telling. Uh, British people, their entire life story when the British person just wants to sort of get a yes. Is that something you found difficult? Is it something that you maybe still find a little bit difficult? Yeah, it did take me a while to get used to that, especially as a such a, to me, quite an annoying like little <laughs> intro to a conversation. It's just it's just so mm-hmm. pointless. Like you, you call someone and you have a really specific question that would take 10 seconds to ask. And you have to get this whole spiel out of the way first, you know, like everyone gives the same answer, everyone says the same thing. It's like basically yeah. a minute's worth of a wasted conversation each time. But, but I, you know, I, I integrate, I adapt. So I'm, I'm so there. happy you said that. I'm so happy you said that. Um, I was just saying last week I came back from Britain and I just couldn't hack the the sort of circular 10 minute conversation to get to the point of what someone wants to ask you or passing indirectness is something that i find i've got less and less patience for i don't mind the slightly more gruff version where people just go all right all right all right yeah <laughs> that, yeah i can deal with that, that yeah, yeah. It's, a bit, it's a bit moin isn't it you know like moin <laughs> yeah. you know moin fine yeah. but um yeah i actually had a weird small talk interaction today at, at the office because everyone's come back and there's loads of people who've never met and someone introduced me in the elevator which was curious it's never happened in germany that someone would engage in a conversation in the elevator and uh I thought that was the end of the conversation and I was walking away and I turned around and, and the person who I was talking to was like sort of standing there with a very sort of confused look and I had to go back and continue the small talk conversation. <laughs> I was like, what's going on here? This has really tripped me up, you know, I was quite surprised by it. Yeah, people seem very phased in Britain by unfilled conversation space. It just gets filled whilst Germans just are quite happy to just leave mm-hmm. it 
mm-hmm. silent. Yeah, yeah, me and my German colleague were like walking away. We'd be done. We're finished, you know. And this other colleague was just like, mm, I don't know what's going on here. Why are we not talking about the weather? Um, yeah. So um, it's uh, quite fitting and, and proper that we've got a, a historian on the podcast because uh, we've had a bit of a historic week. Obviously, the news arrived on Friday that the Queen had passed away, and that's made things uh, slightly interesting. I'm not exactly a fan of the monarchy, but I was a bit moved by all the history that was flying at me over the weekend. And actually, the other day, I read uh, that King Charles was swearing an oath to uphold the Scottish Kirk or church, which uh, really got my 17th century alarm buzzing, shall we say. (laughs) Um, What's it been like in the UK? Yeah, all-encompassing, I'd say. Mm -hmm. I mean, when when I first heard the news and it broke you know first the the news of of her like deteriorating health Mm -hmm. and then you kind of already got this kind of like sense of doom Mm -hmm. i actually the first thing i found odd was that i got a call immediately when the news broke from my german grandmother in thuringia interesting a lot of people said the same thing yeah it was it was she was absolutely like flabbergasted by it and just Mm. kind of really quite um, shocked is the wrong word, but just kind of stunned by mm-hmm. it almost. So she's like, but she was always there. Mm-hmm. And she she takes such an interest, like lots of Germans do, strangely, certainly older Germans, I mm-hmm. think, in the royal family, you know, mostly as a kind of you follow their doings and you read mm-hmm. about it and you talk about it at the hairdresser kind of thing. But yeah, that that was the first thing. Um, and then obviously it's it's just been the topic of conversation you know wherever you go mm. people have got their opinions on it and and talk about it and it's obviously on the news it's, it's on tv non-stop um so it's yeah it's very much been a, a kind of experience i think that everyone has some sort of part in yeah like a unifying experience for sure you actually wrote about the sort of interactions between the queen and germany in the spectator you see the royal family and you see the queen in the sort of soapy gossip mags during the jubilee it would be in the more sort of straight media spiegel things like that uh but usually it's sort of gossipy but actually you were sort of saying there's much deeper connection between the queen and and germany than i'd really perceived yeah i think it's one of those things because the queen's been around so long and obviously as the head of state been involved in so many uh, historical events it's really odd she's she's got one of those lives that touches like every aspect almost of mm-hmm. sort of like 20th century history so yeah. you know as I, as I wrote in that article as well the fact that when she came to Berlin for the first time in in 1965 and the wall had literally just been mm-hmm. well like four years earlier but it, it was still a relatively raw thing you know it didn't exist in its kind of final state which which people associate with it so it's still very kind of just bricks and, and a bit of barbed wire on top kind of thing. And, and you know, you see the pictures of her and Philip like in the open car right behind it on, on the Western side, sort of like he's actually waving over and then she kind of just glances over like that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then obviously, in, you know, even in East Germany, people were totally excited by it. They couldn't actually go there. They couldn't, you know, kind of take part as such, but they watched it on, on TV and, and were following it. And, you know, it's it's something, I think, because she's been around for so long, most people have had some sort of experience in their lives, you know, where they remember kind of interacting with, with her uh, as a as a kind of image or as a as a figure, you know. So everyone has got some sort of personal memory, and and I think that's no different in Germany. And the fact that she was kind of sort of reaching out as well in terms of reconciliation, which was the sort of gist of of my article there as well, I think also stuck with a lot of people, especially as the royal family. Uh, had sort of stayed in London during the war, you know, Buckingham Palace mm. was bombed and so on and yeah. so forth. So for 
for someone, I mean, the Queen was the last surviving head of state as well that had actually taken part in the Second World War. And for her to then 20 years later, you know, sort of come over and, and reach out basically to, to Germans, I think, stuck with people. Yeah, continuity. I think that's mm. the key word at the moment. Yeah, I think the fact alone that she got praised, like not praised, but basically people were saying nice things about her after she she died in Cuba. You know, you heard things mm-hmm. from Putin, from uh, Xi in China, you know, and if you get that breadth, you know, compared to, and, and together with obviously allies and everyone else as well, Israel, where she'd never actually been before. Mm-hmm. If you get that kind of a range of people genuinely feeling like something momentous has just happened, I think, you know, that's quite telling. There's a disconnect, obviously, being in Germany. I was like in the Alps when I got the news. <laughs> I was like on top of a mountain. I was like, oh, bloody hell. I think it was uh, it was the producer who messaged and said that what was happening. And I don't know. I, I, like I said, I'm not, I'm no fan of the monarchy, but there was a weird sensation for sure, like a, almost a destabilization mm. and like the equilibrium was, was changing. Yeah. But I'm sort of not, a, I wouldn't say addicted to the sort of coverage. That's a bit weird to say, but I'm certainly like hyper interested in it. It's fascinating, isn't it? You kind of see. I was going to ask the same thing. I mean, as a historian, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not, you're a professional historian. I'm, I'm like super amateur. I mean, yes, you have studied it, but that doesn't really mean anything. But I'm just like, oh, wow, they're in Westminster Hall. Oh, wow. He's just, like I said, he's just referenced the Scottish church. Wow. They're talking about like stuff from the 17th century. I loved all the proclamations as well. You kind of just imagine somebody like rolling out a great big uh, scroll and kind of you know proclaiming things from the rooftops and they got the trumpets mm-hmm. out they had uh the hearse going up the royal mile yesterday and there were there was they had the i forget the name of the regiment but the 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 royal is it the royal bodyguard and they've got um long bows mm, yeah uh and you're just During like, the vigil cool, yesterday, like yeah yeah i saw that as well <laughs> and they were like going at the royal mile and they're talking about john knox and i'm like when does john knox get on bbc prime time mm. <laughs> like not not very often you know and and it's sort of I say it's an inverted commas, like ancient customs versus sort of modern reality, seeing the sort of language they're using, but portrayed with really super modern media. That's mm. totally wild. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's, it's it just clashes as well. You're kind of mm-hmm. doing something as you would do, you drive somewhere in your car and come back and switch the telly on and you see words spoken that were written mm-hmm. in the like 17th century or something. Exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like every time i see black rod i'm always like yeah let the door it's black rod um i mean they did the the vigil yesterday and it was like they had people walking past like tourists and stuff not necessarily tourists but people mm. sort of coming to pay their respects and i was like that would never have happened in the, in the 50s that would have never happened before then i did think for a moment they could have waited until yeah. they they'd done the vigil because it just felt like they were almost having to perform basically for Mm -hmm. for people around them so i I did Mm -hmm. think that was a little bit odd but i suppose they want to be seen as being open and transparent Mm -hmm. and and accessible i have to assume that that was their decision like i can't believe they wouldn't have consulted them on it oh by the way there's some people going to walk past in the background but i mean who knows i don't know he seems to have just been swept along by the by the events himself i mean it's it's odd to think that he hasn't had a moment basically to himself you know since Mm -hmm. his mother died it seems a very like full-on schedule that he's been on ever since. One of the things I dislike most about the monarchy isn't the monarchy necessarily, but the people who talk about it professionally on television and the sort of, they become like royal sort of king whisperers who are like, oh, I think the king or the queen or prince so-and-so is thinking this. And if I was them, this is what I'd be thinking. And you're like, just you're trying to fill sort of dead air basically yeah and they have to go on the slightest like smallest whimsical things and then kind of try and yeah. interpret what's actually going on the, then you've got the sort of people on twitter who 
that's even that's even worse because it's even people with even less experience and knowledge sort of commenting on stuff. I, I thought everyone on Twitter was an expert in everything. Oh yeah, Isn't of course that how it we works? all are. Yeah, <laughs> I think you might be the only expert on there. It's definitely not me, but um, it's definitely a place where you just see people with crazy theories, especially about the monarchy. Of like, he's not mourning hard enough. You know, he needs to mourn hard, and you say, like, oh, Jesus, come on, I really. There was an interesting sort of tidbit, and I was curious what you thought about this. Did you hear about the Royal Parks requesting people to stop leaving Paddington Bear cuddly toys? Yes, I saw that, yeah. Right, and the thing I was thinking was, is that like just a great example of how sort of British memory works, where the, the last reference point is the only reference point for a lot of people. <laughs> like there's 70 years of monarchy, but they're like, oh yeah, she did that thing with like Paddington. It depends, I think. I mean, it might also be, you know, people with children because that would mm -hmm. have been something that maybe stuck with them from the, mm. you know, from the Jubilee. Um, but yeah, I don't really know, to be honest. It's just one of those things, I think, that because it was so successful and, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, sort yeah, of exactly. people spoke about it and even those that hadn't seen it live, like, again, you know, I had like mm -hmm. German relatives calling me, did you see that Paddington <laughs> thing? It's like, yes, I, I actually live in this country. I did see what was going on during the Jubilee. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. That, that was, again, something I think that just kind of triggered something in people's minds and, yeah, it'll stick. I'd maybe be more respectful if I was like in the country, but I was really happy that you were coming on. The dynamic's interesting because you're a German in Britain and I'm a, a Britain in Germany. And it was just sort of, I, I, I really, my feeling was sort of, yeah, a bit of confusion, but mostly like all this history enjoyment. But I'm glad, I'm glad there was sort of a similarity there. Between <laughs> I two think trainers. everyone feels it's just a bit <laughs> surreal. And, yeah. yeah, totally. Well, we're not here just to simply talk about the sad news of the Queen's passing. Uh, we're also here to plug your book. No, we're also <laughs> here to, <laughs> yeah, why not? No, um, I was like really, Blood Nine's been on my list of books to read and I read it just earlier this year and I could spend a large part of the podcast just talking about like how much I enjoyed reading it. One of the things that I really like bugs me about um, sort of reading sort of history is it can be very high handed. Like I read a lot of, uh, I've read a lot of Niall Ferguson as a good example. And great if you like that perspective. And obviously he's, I think he, he writes very well, but it can be a little bit sort of 19th century. And I've been reading a lot of uh, sort of English Civil War stuff, which is very similar. And what I enjoyed about yours is it, it, it sort of spoke to me at sort of eye level, but also didn't patronize in any way. And you also didn't do that terrible thing where mostly everything that was said is translated. Mm. And I hate that about history books where it'll be someone will like throw in some French and I'll, I don't speak French and they don't translate it. I'll say, oh, it's just a little bit of blah, 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 blah. I don't speak French. Yeah, people do that with Latin a lot as well. <laughs> oh, I hate it so much. And I'm just like, come on, man. Like, okay, you've got an education, mm. groovy, but like, do you want to sort of share the knowledge? And I like that. But also you have a chapter that's, I think it's a single chapter on the First World War. And I think it's pretty impressive to encapsulate the level of detail you did in that chapter. It wasn't an easy thing to, to write, I can tell you that. that and was... I, like, I was reading it going, bloody hell, you've got all the beats, you know, and it's, but also it's, it's very much from the German perspective, which is not something that as a British person reading history that you necessarily get an experience of. So it was very sort of things that I didn't realize that had gone on and the, the striking that was occurring and the sort of social unrest. But it was quite a feat, I thought, to sort of include all that stuff in one chapter. Um, so um, if I had a hat, I would I would take it off. Uh, but one of the things that really attracted me to the book, and this is probably due more to Brexit than anything else, was um, how you bring a nation together. And, and the story is it certainly starts with Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm trying to sort of bring this nation of, of disparate states together together 
fire pressure. And I wondered if if that was something that you sort of found interesting or was maybe one of the motivations for writing about Blood Nine. I, my mind is so stuck in German, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> people tell me I've become so English that, you know, since I've lived here in terms of my mannerisms and <laughs> yeah, what I yeah. like and whatever. But in terms of what I think about, like history, politics and stuff, I, I watch British politics carefully, mm. of course, because it affects me and because it's all around me and people talk about it. Um, but I'm relatively dispassionate about it, if that makes sense. So it's, it's kind yeah. of something that I observe and, and analyze and talk about, but it doesn't make me angry or sad or happy or whatever to the degree that it does mm-hmm. um, a lot of people who have always lived here. Um, whilst mm-hmm. German politics and history does that. So it's it's one of those things when I wrote Blood and Iron, it, it wasn't deliberately designed to um, let's say appeal to a kind of anglophone audience as such it was mm-hmm. kind of me writing in english but and obviously taking into account what what british and american people might know or might not know about german the mm-hmm. german context but it wasn't deliberately designed to be a, a kind of metaphor i suppose or, or kind of a, a hidden message towards uh things like that the the main the main thing i've always wanted to write that because i do think there isn't enough emphasis on that time period and i mean there's a lot of um scholarly research on it um especially in germany but not a lot of um kind of public debate whilst that is very much the case with the second world war certainly and and the holocaust and other parts of history um and i think it's too often kind of treated just as a prelude to that like I've, mm-hmm. I've previously described elsewhere, like the Second World War as a as a kind of like black hole that just drags the whole of German history towards it. Everything that happened afterwards is supposed mm-hmm. to be a result of that. Everything that happened before is kind of a prelude or a cause and and led up to it. And I I just mm-hmm. do not think that's the way it was, and that's the way to see it. And especially what I find interesting is that in 1914, when uh, kind of the First World War started and democracy broke down, that's something that hasn't got enough focus, I think. Like, the way that they had a kind of semi-democracy then, mm. and it gave itself up in the sense yeah. of, you know, in, in kind of a moment of crisis, like, oh, we can't afford to be, like, liberal and democratic right now. Let's, as many other countries did temporarily. I mean, mm. you have obviously kind of, you know, legislation, wartime legislation in, in Britain and France and elsewhere as well. But at the same time, you know, it was never meant to be like a permanent thing, whilst Germans just on the whole, up until 1916, 17, don't seem all that phased by it, you know, and this is something I found really interesting. And then when the uh, anniversary last year came up of the uh, foundation of Germany, so in 1871, basically, Germany was founded as a nation state, and last year, that was exactly 150 years ago, that was kind of my little peg to, to mm. find the right time to, to publish it and write it basically and finish it. Um, but it is something I've been thinking about for a long time, independent of moving to Britain. And, and like you said, it is something that I do find is quite overlooked. And when I talk about Bismarck with people, not that I do that very often. But <laughs> I do. I, I'm, just, I'm sure you do it more than I do. I'm like, um, I mean, I do it often enough because you know, as soon as you get me on history, it's it's the end of the world. Ask uh, my, my co-host, who's sadly not here. But um, yeah, when I've spoken to people about Bismarck, it's often they see it in terms of, ah, right, that was that was the start of when National Socialism sort of began to sort of, th- th- that began that process because it goes from Bismarck directly to Hitler, directly to the Second World War. And I've always found that a bit weird. So, I mean, 
is it weird that Bismarck isn't revered particularly in Germany given his sort of impact on the foundation of the country? Your, your view is probably a little bit warped because you're in Bavaria. I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was in Hamburg earlier and I was I saw the statue to Bismarck there and I know there's many around the country and I'm, I, yeah, I'm sure Bavaria aren't. They've got Ludwig II. They'll, they'll stick with that, you know. I mean, he built a lovely castle, you know. So, <laughs> so he did. Let's, let's, uh, all the fuggers or something like that will avoid talking about um, the sort of north. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I do get the feeling though that in, in general, Bismarck appears to be sort of revered slightly more outside of Germany. Am I maybe got the wrong end of the stick or am I just too Bavarian? I, no, I think it depends in Germany who you speak to. I find that really interesting. So that statue that you mentioned in mm. Hamburg, and there was a huge debate around it because they're refurbishing it. So you might have seen yeah. like the, you know, the cranes and all that. I couldn't get close um, to it. Yeah. Um, so when that was discussed because it was kind of the the foundation of it had like cracks in it and it needed quite substantial kind of rebuilding mm-hmm. and, and stabilizing but also cleaning because it was like graffitied and like as everything seems to be in, <laughs> in german cities um but basically it cost about nine million um mm-hmm. euros um and there was a huge debate because hamburg basically the city of hamburg said that it was going to split that with uh, the state like the federal state um and mm-hmm. effectively it was public money that was going to be spent on it and it was a lot of kind of public you know figures like historians intellectuals and so on who said absolutely not what are we doing and you know and it, it was kind of part of this whole statue wars mm. thing suddenly which hadn't really quite reached germany yet but with that it yeah. did um but because I I was writing a lot about that at the time as well, and I, I looked into some of the surveys that were taken at the time, and it was like incredibly high figures. It was something like I think eight percent wanted the statue gone, and like sixty eight percent or something wanted it basically to to stay there to be renovated to be looked after. Um, and and those voices you don't really hear because it's not it's kind of this the split I think between yeah like I say sort of intellectuals it's the same kind of as you see now with Ukraine you know looking at at media and at public figures you'd think all of Germany is against kind of supporting Ukraine with with weapons mm-hmm. and is kind of pacifist when actually yeah. when you look at the surveys the vast majority of people um, are supporting mm-hmm. Ukraine even if it's costly so I think it's it's one of those things where people wouldn't necessarily you know, come out guns blazing and, and kind of waving flags and going, yeah, we, we want Bismarck mm. to be more revered. But he is one of those figures that scores still relatively highly when they do these, like, who was the greatest German kind of things, uh, surveys. So he's, he's not completely, uh, I would say, discredited. On the, on the contrary, most people, I think, feel reasonably okay about him. There's also that element in school you still learn about, like the welfare state and and all of those kinds of things that you did as well. Um, so it's certainly when I was at school, um, you you got a relatively balanced kind of history of him. You mentioned the sort of intellectual aspect, and I do get the feeling like you could have 65% of people say anything and all it takes is 25 intellectuals with an mm. open letter to Tagesspiegel yeah. to sort of everyone to go, oh, well, well, you know, Professor, Professor, Doctor, Doctor said this. and you're like, oh, Yeah, like with, with the statue <laughs> like in Hamburg, not. it was, a, I think, a pastor in Hamburg who basically said that the statue should be decapitated and and smashed up and a a park of anti-colonialism or something like that should be established with the fragments of the statue in it and they should all be graffitied over and people should be allowed to vandalize it as a sign of kind of we've overcome this chapter in our history and like I said, I quite strongly spoke out about it because even if you want to have that debate and that debate should be had, I don't think Bismarck is the right person to target there given his own kind of reluctance to actually start an empire that was never 
his thing. He'd always said yeah. like Germany needs to be a continental power, not not out of a, a moral reason, but because he figured no. it was going to aggravate Britain and France if Germany starts kind of you know poking around in in areas where they haven't had any territory before, and and that's why it was never kind of his ambition as such. Which is why you know have that debate, of course, but have it as a debate rather than smashing random statues of people that aren't um, kind of the main focus of that debate. Yeah, I can see I can see some discussions, and in Britain the dynamics obviously quite different, but it does seem to get a little bit more. It seems very much more focused in Germany and a little bit more pearl clutchy than it does often in Britain. I mean, like certainly in the media, that's the the general experience I have whenever there's a sort of discussion about street signs and things like that but and, and I actually i looked at the statue in hamburg and i was like it's pretty well designed statue like it looks pretty interesting and given i spent sort of five years living in nuremberg where they have the parade ground and a lot of the former sort of nazi buildings are, are there for for everyone to see it seems like a weird argument to have when one side of the country is like yep there you can walk around it you can go see the football team play in the stadium um you can go and see where where these sort of speeches were um uh, were given in 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 nuremberg um and it stands as a sort of living monument and then the other option is decapitate a statue okay (laughs) it's an interesting take um yeah one of the more interesting parts of of blood and iron was how uh, bismarck set about forging a unified country out of a collection of different states and what this is sort of a theme that simon and i have circled for a, a few times uh, and much of that seemed to be how he united the country seemed to be by creating various enemies real and imagined whether it was sort of austria france the catholic church socialists yeah uh, do you think this was the only way he could have brought everyone together or i can't imagine you'd done it in a sort of a friendly hand-holding kind of way but is, is the only way do you think that's the only way you do it well that was sort of the point of his blood and iron speech um mm. so you know where, where i've taken the title from as well so you know there was like all of these liberal parliamentarians and, and kind of more generally widely speaking kind of liberal people who'd um argued for a an all german constitution before because what they i mean at the time you we associate nationalism now with a kind of more right-wing tendencies but at the time the whole point of nationalism was mm. you create a nation state um with a constitution and the rule of law so that you take power away from the monarch basically because it ties him or, or her to the to that same constitutional framework so that was the whole point so you had all of these liberals sitting around saying you know, let's do this through like proper uh, a proper process, basically, where we pass legislation and we create a parliament and all the rest of it. And Bismarck was saying, well, that's all well and nice, but it doesn't work. Mm. And that was his, his blood and iron kind of thing. So he was saying, if you if you want this nation state, then we need to do it through blood and iron. And, and he basically points to the failed revolutions of 1848, where they tried this before, and, and the parliament, an all-German parliament, and actually the first one, first proper all-German parliament, was set up uh, in Frankfurt, and that didn't work, and you had kind of violent uprisings and all the rest of it, and that was then suppressed by by the various kind of conservative forces who, who wanted to stabilise the monarchy. So Bismarck was kind of arguing, well, if you want this nation-state, we need to do it through war uh, blood and iron effectively and and so it certainly in his view he didn't think it was going to happen in any other way i think it would have done eventually because you had other movements as well so they were like cultural undercurrents that had been around for a long time the, the brothers grimm being perhaps the most kind of iconic example um who you know sort of set about writing fairy tales down 
because they the idea was to standardize kind of the the local versions of them and then everyone would read from the same kind of moral page and, and educate their children in the same way and and all of that's going on and at the same time you've got lots of the, the rising middle classes because of industrialization and they want like a unified kind of system of of trade and of uh, transport and getting people from a to b and and to standardize all of that as you know from you know looking at the eu for example you you will have an increasingly political system around that so i think eventually it would have led to a point where you know it would have shifted in that direction but it would have taken a lot longer and caused an awful lot of political unrest as well as as per 1848 which is what both the monarchs and the liberals were worried about because nobody wanted to go back to that. So his solution was kind of, let's do it now and let's do it with a hammer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he doesn't come across as sort of a, a cuddler, you know. He doesn't seem like he's going to, oh, yeah, if we just if we just sit around a table and have a chat, you know. Um, I, I imagine most of the tables he interacted with were like sort of, he was smashing his fist off them. What I really love about history is, is all these sort of connecting lines and a number of them you've sort of mentioned already between the past and the present and in your book there's loads but the one example that stood out for me is that i'd always wondered about standersamt and like how does that happen and then i came across it on one of the chapters where you mentioned that because of the um kulturkampf bismarck's way of attacking the catholic church was to remove the power of they had over people's sort of marriages and weddings and he made it so that you had to go to a um a registry office and officially marry before you could have a church service that's my favorite example do you have any particular favorite examples or any other examples that you found where there's those similar sort of through lines yeah i mean the the whole thing with the cultural campus is actually quite interesting because the i mean that's one example that you just gave but it's normally seen mm. as a failure um at least sort of in, in more kind of in less nuanced accounts um when actually, I mean, Bismarck did have to repeal a lot of the legislation because there was so mm. much backlash. Um, and actually, he wanted to destroy like political Catholicism in, in the form of the, mm. the Centre Party, the Catholic Party, um, which didn't work because people flocked to it and, and it kind of just completely backfired. But when he retreated from the Kulturkampf, orderly retreat, aka, you know, as, as you see from Bismarck, um, that that sort of stuff all stuck, um, you know, and you had a much, much more kind of secularised society, mm. you know, look at schools, for example, or, um, you know, as you said, marriages, um, priests now had to be educated at, at colleges and so on and so forth. So you, you get a completely, even to this day, I don't actually know whether it's any different in Bavaria, because the obviously the education system is kind of run state by state. Um, but certainly in Brandenburg, where I grew up, you couldn't make like religious education wasn't allowed to be a compulsory part of the curriculum. You could opt to do it. Oh, you can opt out. Yeah, that you can do ethics instead. Yeah. Um, but you didn't, you know, because they they can't basically incorporate that into the school system because of the kind of strict split between church and state. Um, well, strict as in strict, we all know it's not all that strict, but on, on paper it's supposed to be. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, one of those legacies that just stuck. So part of me wonders, you know, is he like the the kind of second hand car dealer that just goes like a little bit higher than he wants to be and, you know, in hopes that the middle ground yeah, in the yeah, end is, yeah. is what he was actually aiming for. So did he like go full in to get away with the stuff that eventually he got away with? Um, I don't know. It's hard to tell because obviously we don't really know what the thinking was to start with. But he certainly certainly changed Germany with that and, and those legacies last. The same with the welfare state. Uh, I think it would have taken a lot longer had he not 
you know, again, not out of moral reasons, not because he loved the, the working classes so much, but he just assumed that a bit of, as he called it, state socialism would, mm-hmm. would be enough to take uh, kind of the sting out of the, the trade union movement. Um, mm. And because of that, he went a lot further than other countries did at the same time and a lot mm-hmm. further than the other conservatives were um, comfortable with. So again, you know, once that's yeah. there, you can't take it back because that would in itself like create huge amounts of, of problems. Um, and you have things like pensions and you know accidents insurance and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's like totally liberal state at the end of the sort of nineteenth century. You're well, like, I wouldn't what? go that far, but <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, like, in compa- I mean, in comparatively liberal state in comparison to all the others, certainly compared to sort of uh, the empire and things like that. No, it's a bit of a halfway house. This is the odd thing about Germany. You have this mm. like fairly liberal um, or, or kind of almost social kind of under underbelly of the state that is trying to keep the workers happy. And then mm. on top of that, you've got a fairly rigid, you know, yeah. kind of system at the top. Prussia still had a three-tier voting system up until the end mm. of the, the First World War. And, and, you know, that's totally retro by that point. Everyone was looking at that going, you know, don't you want to change that at some point? You know, treating people literally like a three-car system still. Yeah. Um, so the, it's, it's, it's a bit of an odd one, Germany. So by 1914, it is virtually half and half. Not a mix, but like a half and half system. <laughs> the thing that struck me from the book was when he finally leaves the the chancellery and he's 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 sort of been forced out of this position the whole system begins to deteriorate really quickly because because he'd sort of designed it with him in mind it was sort of like a i've made this system with the chancellor and the kaiser and the chancellor has a lot of powers and if you can navigate and maneuver all the pieces on the board and it was like a giant sort of game that he created that only he could play and as soon as someone else took the the hot seat i mean there were sort of going uh, there were the fallen sort of um every other year or something it felt like in the sort of narrative of the book it felt like oh we've got oh compared um, compared to today i mean if you have a chancellor in place for four years that's pretty good isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i mean yeah tell me about it we'll see we'll see how schultz does right but um it, you made that really clear was that the, the actual design you had to have someone like bismarck in charge and if you didn't have his attributes then the system wouldn't work and i think that was something that stood out i just i'd love to be sort of see bismarck waking up on a morning and just how his brain worked was like right what problem am i going to fix and he'd like <laughs> find a problem and just its pragmatism is something that is sort of i mean I, I sort of lean left, but I do like a pragmatist, you know, someone who's like... Yeah, oh, and his, his brain apparently, by the way, was huge. Like, they measured it yeah, after really- he died. They actually, like, <laughs> took it out and, and like, measured it. And, and I saw in the... I think it was in the New York Times or somewhere, like, even in the US, they were, like, interested in that. They were, like, headlines, you know, <laughs> of Bismarck's big head and all the rest of it because people were just so intrigued by, yeah. by this person you know that even after his death they were trying to in typical sort of 19th century fashion trying to work out what the physical characteristics were (laughs) behind his mental state i studied a lot of japanese history and one of my favorite stories is uh, the japanese send out embassies and like sort of around 1871 i think it's in 1872 or three that they arrive in germany and uh the next stop after that's britain and uh, the waiting for the the Japanese embassy to arrive, and they're waiting for these sort of stereotypical, traditionally dressed Japanese people, and they all get out of these carriages with, with smoking massive cigars, with big like mustaches, and they've all spent some time with Bismarck, and a lot of them were like so enamoured with them <laughs> that they are like sort of growing big mustaches and smoking big cigars. <laughs> I read the articles, and they're like, there's just the surprise of. 
oh, these aren't uh, like the guys who came in 1868. These guys are like, they look like Bismarck. <laughs> you know, it's so hilarious. But um, so he obviously had an impact. Yeah. Um, this isn't necessarily on the book. It's more sort of a general cultural question. But we talked a bit about how history is perceived in Germany and that the, the, the sort of Second World War becomes this vacuum uh, for a lot of people. And I've often thought about it and sort of my experience, I feel like certainly with education or my experience of German education through Bavaria, there's a lot of focus on the history in a lot of different ways and that it comes up in literature classes and it comes up in ethics classes and it sort of it drops in and out of the curriculum. Do you think uh, that Britain could learn from how Germany goes about teaching history? It's a tricky one because A, in Germany is it's like different, isn't it, from state mm-hmm. to state? Um, okay, can we learn from the lovely state of Bavaria? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> oh. Why not? I met. Is I it met, all the crucifixes in schools? No, I Is met that, one, that too, but I met too many Bavarians at Jena where I studied because that's in Thuringia and relatively close. And they mm-hmm. they had just introduced um, study fees in most mm-hmm. former West German universities, and so a lot of like West Germans came over and the amount of Bavarians I had to endure who told me that their education <laughs> system is superior to anybody else's and they should have a lower numerous clauses and all the rest of it because yeah, of the yeah. uh, like superior nature of their education system. But never mind, that's a no for me for that. Just in case you were unsure, <laughs> Kaya, everything is better in Bavaria. The, the air is fresher. So I'm told. The beer tastes sweeter. <laughs> the uh, Kaiser Sana Torta is... I don't know, softer? Is that a good yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly, yeah. I, I certainly I feel that experience. What, what I love as well is that people in Bavaria don't ever, they can't quite decide whether they want to insult me as a Prussian or as an Aussie. Like I get, I get like either and sometimes it's interspersed as well, which is brilliant. Uh, but yeah, on the education front, um, I I don't know. I mean, the, the the fact is, as you say, there's a lot of focus in Germany and the, and the idea is that people should learn lessons from history for today rather than just learning history for the sake of learning history, which is in some ways a good thing because people have to do history for much longer than, than in Britain where you can get rid of it as a subject much earlier. Um, but A, that leads to a point where people who are just not interested are still having to do it and I'm wondering whether that backfires to, to some extent. And I think it's got a little bit better now, but when I was at school, there was almost too much emphasis on the learning aspect. So you would go say, um, I mean, a a concentration camp would be the extreme example, but we went to uh, either Sachsenhausen or Buchenwald, I can't remember because we went to both, but I can't remember which one I'm talking about at the moment. But basically the exhibition that was still there um, at the time was fairly devoid of content. It was very much focused on commemoration and on... um, a very abstract way of remembering. So you'd have like memorials that don't really um, show a particular aspect of the history, but it's kind of like, say, a, a triangle to represent the, the void, say, that, that was left behind, that kind of thing. And it almost was, I felt at the time, at the expense of the history. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. actually get, in my view, enough kind of figures and, and facts. And, and that left enough room for those people who wanted to not engage with it to, to do that and kind of do their own thing in their own minds with it. Um, it's kind of come back a little bit now, I feel. So going going to more German sites kind of now, I've, I feel there's more content now and it's going in that direction a little bit. Um, but I've, I felt it was a little bit too much kind of on the, and what have we learned from this kind of thing now? And, and I did the Holocaust, yeah. I think, three times as well during my secondary education, which um, 
also backfired with some people in my in my year group um, who were kind of literally rolling their eyes and going, you know, we've, we've done this now, let's move on mm. kind of thing, which then has the opposite effect of what it's supposed to do. Um, so I think there's a there's a balance to be struck. And then in Britain, it seems to me it's completely deregulated. Like people just mm. kind of teach what they want to teach, like sort of almost school by school. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, whether that's better or worse depends completely on what the individual person does with it, I think. Like as in the school, it's something that I'm definitely thinking about since the Queen's death. Is the the things that unify people in Britain, and you have so many different elements of things that unify people in in Germany. Even if there's 16 different states, almost 16 different countries in a lot of ways, and but everyone has a Volksfest, everyone has a Dorffest, everyone has a Weinfest, everyone has public holidays, although they're not the same out in every state. But there's there's a lot of them that are. There is the uh, Deutsche Einheit. There is cultural things that bring the nation together although there's difference within that but also i think there's a a through line with the history even if it's oh bloody hell how many sort of modules did we have to do on that whereas in britain it's like i did the highland clearances because i went to a scottish high school Mm. and i speak to my english friends and they're like what are the highland clearances (laughs) you know like there's such a disconnect from Mm. nation to nation from from region to region like if i live in newcastle my nieces and nephew are learning about coal mining in the northeast while someone in i don't know uh, stratford is learning about the life of william shakespeare in sort of crazy detail yeah i felt that when i was talking to people about my citizenship test here Mm. I was quite okay with the questions because there were so many history questions in there. So, you know, it's like... Same on the German citizenship when was, test, yeah. when was the Battle of Bosworth? And I'm like, 1485. <laughs> That's all good. Yeah. Um, but you tell, like, people about that, you know, and all kind of... When I was going through this, you know, there's, like, a mm. little app that you can download on the phone and I was, like, just showing, you know, like, British friends and people and, uh, you know, what, what the questions were and everyone was totally freaked out by them. So I don't think it is the case that you got, like, a fixed, as you say, kind of line of history that everyone hmm. learns and and those dates are kind of all those facts are, are kind of universally known um this kind of notion that everyone knows the kings and queens of england uh, <laughs> i just i don't see it to be honest but yeah i don't know i'm part of the sealed knot so we do sort of 17th century battle reenactments don't laugh um and um we did an event a few weeks ago and it was there was loads of visitors and someone sort of pulled me aside and went oh it's like really interesting like um, like so what's that and I'm like it's a pike and oh, it's that it's, it's the helmet and the armour and he's like so tell me what is the civil war and I'm like <laughs> just like that's like sort of Britain all over it's like oh there's the having a battle what is it don't know let's go see <laughs> you know? yeah that certainly so, yeah. wouldn't happen when when I lived in Yena they did a reenactment um, of the, it was 200 years so it must have been 2006 um, of uh, Yena and Auerstedt you know the, the twin battles oh, right. and I, I thought at the time why would you do that to yourself it's like one of the most humiliating <laughs> <laughs> battles um, lost masochists yeah. they're all masochists yeah there's yeah, like yeah. a Napoleon riding around on a white horse and everything of course and, yeah and, but everybody kind of you know knew quite a bit about it so I, I you mm. know walking around there I didn't feel um, you know people had just come to well they had come to see like people on horse and cannons being fired but mm. on top of that people kind of just seemed to to know that that seems to be part of the kind of canon that is, is taught at um, mm. German schools I think yeah well Maybe, maybe the new education minister will sort it out. Fingers <laughs> crossed, eh? Uh, so um, one story from Blood and Iron that really spoke to me concerned an inflammatory article in the Daily Telegraph from uh, 1908. And it was in an interview with Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, 
and he described the British as being mad as March hares. And he bragged about saving the British in the Boer War, among many other things. And the reason I liked it so much was that the only reason it made its way into the public sphere was because both the Chancellor of Germany and his press secretary were on holiday, and some poor bureaucrat was left either to change the words of the Kaiser or just leave it alone. And the, the nameless bureaucrat in question sensibly chose the latter. I don't know, something about the people in charge being on holiday and the dislike of independent decision-making really spoke to me. Um, or maybe I'm being a bit too harsh, I don't know. <laughs> but it just like, I was sitting on a Strassenbahn and I just, it made me laugh so much because it just, it totally nailed something that I've always thought about sort of German culture. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's this whole like, nicht mein Zuständigkeitsbereich, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I just saw the out-of-office email like in my mind and I was like, what's the, the German Empire equivalent of an out-of-office email? Is this yeah, of, that is it. Just is slap it. in the face. And, and add that with this absolute <laughs> adherence to authority, you can just almost sense this poor little bureaucrat like sweating yeah. about having to do that and then going nah i can't really do that so let's just send <laughs> just it out it'll be fine <laughs> i just think yeah i mean what do you do it's like the kaiser's sort of um next to god in the sort of ranking and you know eh, well you know don't want to piss him off and i think that's actually generally the sort of thinking by a lot of bureaucrats in my sort of estimation is it's like this isn't my responsibility I'm not putting my stamp on this. Ultimately, it's the Kaiser who said it. I mean, let's be fair. It's not like he made it up. So, <laughs> oh, You can't blame him, you know, for the words he uses, you know. But yeah, so um, earlier this year, you and I had a back and forth about Germans waiting at traffic lights. Uh, and so this is my perfect opportunity to ask. Why do you think it is Germans are so willing to wait for a green light before crossing the road? Because it's the proper thing to do. <laughs> I do it. <laughs> I, find, I set him up, Katia, I, you knock him I down. I just find it so <laughs> difficult to even even now. Still, I mean, I sort of do it now because it's like peer pressure, and peer pressure, you just yeah. cannot stand there and wait. But um, I had this horrific episode when I was at university, and it was like literally the middle of the night, and nobody was there in the town center, and I was just wondering, like, wanting to walk back to the to the mm. Straßenbahn to get home. And I thought to myself, you know, it's this classic like red light nobody is there and <laughs> I'm stood there in the middle of the town center by myself looking left right no car nothing and even at that point I even like you know with a heavy heart I decided to to cross the road and at that point I just hear this halt you know from like behind oh. me and there's a policeman stood there I, I hadn't seen him before but he actually called me back and gave me a proper lecture about how he could take my license my car license that is you know bearing in mind I was on foot how he could take my car license away and, and didn't I know what I was doing and had I never seen a red light before. And, you know, I got the full oh, on, Jesus. <laughs> just what you want to hear on a night out at three o'clock in the morning as well. It took a <laughs> lot of uh, self-discipline not to say all the wrong things at that point. Um, but yeah, that branded me for a while. So um, I think that might well play into it as well. It's kind of the opposite peer pressure in Germany, isn't it? If you're the one that walks, um, mm -hmm. then you're the odd one out as opposed to the other way around. I think in Britain, though, there's like this, you sort of see it in people because the red light goes on and people sort of second guess. And there's always one person who I feel like it's got like Led Zeppelin playing <laughs> in their ears or something as they sort of charge out across the street. And then everyone's like, he's the leader or she's the leader. And they charge out after. And it's like, all right, well, if everyone's yeah. crossing, you know, I don't want to look like an idiot. But I, I tried to hold to my guns when I was in Britain and I cracked about five days I was just going to say my, how long did it last <laughs> my, my brother turned around and went what are you doing you massive twat and I was like 
Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I guess that's the way it works. He's always constantly complains that I'm a robot now that I live in Germany, simply because I don't know what a pinch of salt is. I, th- I think it's a fair, reasonable position to have that I don't know what a measurement <laughs> that is. That unless is it's very in... German, though. <laughs> I know, so yeah. how many oh, milligrams? Yeah, exactly. I was like, come on, what is a pinch? My pinch is bigger than someone else. Anyway, we're not going to get into this <laughs> debate. Um, yeah. So uh, when I first moved to Germany, I was like hyper aware of all these differences. And um, as time sort of gone on, I've become more and more convinced that the differences between Britain and Germany are actually rather small. Um, do you think I've gone a bit native or are there more differences than I'm missing? Well, you clearly have if you think that Bavaria is the pinnacle of Germanness. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to say I haven't. Um, no, I think you're right. I think fundamentally there's a lot of um, what I sort of see as like all Germanic things. Uh, I mean, it's stuff like <laughs> pub culture, for example. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that, that they're just like places to hang out, pubs, mm-hmm. um, where people mm-hmm. spend a lot of time. And, and it's not the same, I would say, as, as kind of the more like Romanesque as in French, Italian and so on kind of Mm. eating out kind of thing that's a completely different thing sitting there for three hours and having little nibbles of things and drinking Mm. wine as opposed to like British and German people literally just sitting there drinking beer sort of thing I I always feel that we certainly have more in common than um than say with the French I always quite I find myself quite often sitting there with British people going is that what what are the French doing (laughs) and why (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. That is like in a sort of likable way, you know. Yeah. We, we both like no, no, like, totally, like them as well. Totally. But there's this kind of like, why are they doing that? That's just weird. Um, sort of like so. Say for instance, like work culture. You know, both both uh, British and, and German people, I think, have got this thing of just working too much, like including mm-hmm. through lunch times, and you stay at your desk and and all of that. Was there's just nothing like that would keep a French person at their desk. I think it's actually illegal in France, uh, even. So you know, that's that's a thing that. I think we could possibly learn from from them, <laughs> but it's uh, and you heard it here first. I said we can learn something from the French. It's funny because in Bavaria, everyone's in the canteen or everyone's at a bakery for lunch. You rarely see maybe one person at their desk at lunchtime, and that's the person who's got his feet up asleep. That's even in like sort of modern bit companies that I've worked in. Yeah, I suppose you see this is a difference again between the north and the south thing. Like when I when I was at university, there was a, a Bavarian professor there. Who literally, if you had him in the morning, it was fine. But if you had him after lunch, he would have had sort of three or four beer during his lunchtime. And then he just stood there and went, I don't know why my voice is still so rough. I've had my third beer. And you're like, it's one o'clock, you know. <laughs> um, so that, that just wouldn't, that's not really a thing in the North. Like people take their work, I think, a lot more, perhaps too seriously, but a lot more seriously than I think maybe that's a North South thing as well. I didn't realise I could lecture after three beers at lunchtime. I'm going to have to check oh, my couldn't. contract. I mean, this is, this is my thing. Like, you looked at the timetable, <laughs> we were just like, this is pointless. It was still uh, yeah. interesting, the- but you would just ramble a lot more and like not really stick to his um, notes. The other thing I was thinking, this is like my pet theory, that everyone, literally everyone I've said it to has told me I'm an idiot. But like, I'm convinced that Britain and France are actually really, really super similar. And that's the reason they have so much animosity is that they're like their pride in their country and their love of their country is so similar to almost be a little bit sort of familial 
and I think it's there's there's an aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, but I think in terms of lifestyles, there's, there's bigger differences. Oh there. yeah, totally, I mean, totally, yes. Like try and even yeah. find a place that's open like during the day in France, unless you hit exactly that like sort of ten to <laughs> ten to twelve <laughs> slot, you know. And then again, maybe if you're lucky, between sort of two and four in the afternoon. I like that attitude. I'm a lazy man. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I've worked at a German university for a year now while you're a research fellow at uh, King's College London. And I'm often surprised with the levels of respect that are shown to sort of lecturers here. Whereas in Britain, that level of respect would be sort of considered a block to good discussion or good relationship dynamics. Do you find the differences in academia in Britain quite refreshing in comparison to the sort of professor, professor, doctor, doctor, holier than thou kind of approach you see in Germany I do actually that was genuinely one of the reasons why I left Hmm. Um, not necessarily specifically to Britain but why I left um, like Germany and German academia in particular when I was at university one of the um, like I I was offered a a PhD scholarship to do with Hmm. uh, economic role of the of the granary in the late middle ages in the in Jena in the town that I was in and I was like rock and roll (laughs) it's the dream (laughs) I just can't do this for three years and then, you know, stay in that kind of world. Um, I, I found that very difficult to, to deal with. I mean, right at the beginning, I sent an email to to one of my lecturers and it, it just started with, dear Professor so-and-so. And I got an email back from his research assistant, not even from him, um, uh-huh. that just when prof- Professor Dr. Dr. So-and-so doesn't respond to emails that aren't addressed to him properly. <laughs> I just thought, uh, what? It was a perfectly polite, nice email, but didn't have the like all the right professors and doctors and things in the right place. And yeah, I, I just I find that very difficult to deal with. And also the way that it's like, so exclusive as well, it's very, very difficult to do something else and then mm. kind of come back into academia or write something like Blood and Iron and be be kind of halfway respected by um, German academics because of the way that it's kind of accessible and you know, it doesn't really fit into the kind of typical language and the format that we'd use. It's, it's too short, it's too simplifying, it's too, um, you know, I, I use like various different analogies and things to try and mm. A, make it more readable and be more understandable. And then if there's like the slightest thing wrong with an analogy that you use, you know, they're not always perfect, obviously, but they make sense. Um, you know, you get you get sort of slandered for that. So it's, that's genuinely one of my gripes. And mm. I've I've never really had that in Britain. People are very, very... Um, academics, I mean, and, and universities very open-minded towards like different influences, people at different stages of their career, um, getting people from outside, from the industry and stuff in to talk about stuff. And um, mm. I've, I've found that more um, refreshing. What I do still find difficult is like calling people by their first names. So, <laughs> oh, you know, great. <laughs> uh, even, even at, you know, um, there we had uh-huh. one British professor who spoke excellent German. That was brilliant, actually. It was from Peterborough and very funny. Um, but he uh, basically just introduced himself with his first name. And we were all sitting there, you know, having just been told off <laughs> for not calling someone by their proper like title and everything with their last name and then suddenly you're supposed to call someone like dave um you know <laughs> you are dave yeah i just is it professor dave <laughs> professor dr dr dave uh yeah so it, there are differences certainly in the culture and yeah. i find i found that quite refreshing about britain I mean, I found it a really good way of ascertaining whether a student's been in any of my classes because the first <laughs> session of all my classes and generally the second or maybe third, 
I'll say like you can call us Nick. Don't worry, you can do some. It's no problem. Like if we're talking in English anyway, you don't need to call me Mister. But then six or seven weeks down the line, I'll get an email from someone saying, "Dear Professor Houghton, <laughs> I'm like ah, I see you've not attended any of my classes." <laughs> so yeah, um, I do. I do think it's for some people they find it difficult here as well. It's yeah, well, they're just on the safe side given how much um, other people want that. So um, one of the things that caught my eye on your Twitter feed was the poll that you did asking people if beans on toast is a snack or a meal. Yeah, it's confusing. Um, it really is. <laughs> I loved that discussion. I just hadn't even hadn't thought about it because I was like, well, clearly both. I was really annoyed that you didn't have a both option. I was like, come on, come on, Katia, yeah. help us out here. I was I was amazed <laughs> at the amount of people like just couldn't bring themselves to just go snack or meal that had to like give an elaborate description yeah. of how exactly you'd have to eat it. And I was like, this is just reconfirming how all dare of my, you make us choose all of my confusions oh, yeah. that I've had about this. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that sort of the, the majority went for meal in the end. Um, I'll have you know. But um, well, yeah. I'd hate to go against the uh, the crowd, you know, <laughs> all that peer pressure. But the, the 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 thing I was wondering is, are you one of those rare Germans who actually likes baked beans? I do now. It's a, yes! it's an it's an acquired taste. I have to admit. This one, that one. <laughs> on, on my first ever trip to Britain this was like when I was yeah. in year nine on a class trip on a coach you know like to Hastings of all places um which I thought in hindsight like all the places that you can take people to, to like learn about Britain Hastings is not I mean if anyone from Hastings is listening I, I mean no offense but there are there are nicer places in the UK and also <laughs> you're, you're <laughs> like Milton Keynes go to Milton um, Keynes that's a hard call actually <laughs> Um, yeah and also you know they they train you forever to say your th properly like we were sitting there in the german classroom with a pencil like they you had to put a pencil behind your front teeth put your tongue against it and go you know until you could say things um which i which i can now i'm very pleased with um but this then you go to hastings and there's people just going oh thank you you know, and you're like, yeah. I could have saved myself. I could have just gone with the F, you know. <laughs> where, where are we? I'm in Aston's. Aston's. <laughs> you're like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, anyway, the family I, I stayed with, uh, the, one of the first things that I noticed is that every single meal I got served in that week had beans with it. And I was just totally <laughs> confused by that. It's like, it's edible, but why are you obsessed with it to a point where it yeah, just yeah. becomes a side dish to everything? And then we had like pie one day, you know, and then like... Pie and beans, yeah. I don't know what, what else was there. Pasties, you know, it, it literally like came fish with... Chips. Yeah, fish yeah. and chips. It came with absolutely everything. And yeah, it did take me a while, but now I do quite like them. Although I wouldn't necessarily... Um, oh, I shouldn't say this. This is going to make people really angry. I don't really understand why they go on toast. Like they are in itself a carb. Oh, you're, you're, you're opening up. Why a, do you put a, like a, a carb on a carb? I just don't understand that. It's... Oh, come on. Like, it's like, it's like everything, isn't it? It's privation, isn't it? It's privation food. That's kind of what it, <laughs> like the British, British food, like it's that British memory thing. Again, we can't remember further than sort of 1939 and this sort of, it feels like a very fifties creation where <laughs> someone was like, what have we got? I got some bread. What else? Got some beans. What can we make? <laughs> Beers or toast. Like, it's yes, so, but have you got scrambled egg and cheese and marmite and <laughs> whatever else? We people... don't have enough ingredients for kedgeree. You know? <laughs> whatever else people and, and chips, are, uh, crisps apparently as well, which oh, yeah. um, is another weird thing. But then the crisp sandwiches, like I think the British innovation of shit food is like it's like mind boggling. That is an but... awful one though. I just can't get my head around that. I mean, yeah, if you don't put butter on it, then it's terrible. <laughs> uh, 
I was reading something in The Guardian the other day and it was talking about how on dating profiles you can tell if someone's a beige flag is what they describe them as, people who are just boring instead of a red flag, which is someone who's dangerous. And they were talking about whether they, they have something about Hawaiian pizza, or which is something we've done, so we're clearly very boring as a podcast. But um, the other one was the, the scone, scone, sort of scone, screw it, I'm northern. The scone the debate stone. about jam. And, <laughs> the Queen's no. just died, man. <laughs> No, scone. It's a bath. It's a scone. Let's just move. It's a scone. <laughs> yeah, my pronunci- I teach pronunciation in a university in Germany. Can you believe it? Like, it's well, disgusting. Well, you're in Bavaria. They can't speak German properly, so. Oh, ah, oh, jeez. I, I suppose I, I feel like duty bound to defend that, but at the same time, <laughs> nah. nah, you go with it, Kaya. I'm on your side uh, for this podcast at least. <laughs> Next week, no. Um, yeah, so the scone sort of debate, and it's another one of those things that you sort of created there, haven't you? It's like, why do baked beans go on toast? It's kind of like a meditative mantra that mm. you could repeat. I'm trying to stay out of the scone debates these days <laughs> because it's just, it just creates so much <laughs> angst. Uh, and people yeah. who do it the other way around but yeah i engaged in the first scone war and it's it scarred me you know i can't i can't go back <laughs> sounds like sorry uh, for my saw, history book so so <laughs> too much scone war. Uh, okay um i'm gonna throw some uh quick fire daft backup questions at you before we finish and you can just yeah wax lyrical if you choose or just give me a one-word answer um do you miss tatort or are there any other German shows that you're like, oh, I wish I could get that on, on British television or enjoy that? No, to be honest, I've never... I mean, Tartot is a very... Or was a very certainly, like, old person thing when I grew up. And I never really got it. It's really modern. Till Schweiger's in it now. <sighs> okay, I missed the last 10 years, you can tell. <laughs> um, so that's a no to that one. No, I've never really been into... Um, that's another thing I actually quite like about Britain is that when, when, when they put their minds to it, they make very decent TV. Yeah. Yeah, gotta love that BBC, eh? Uh, <laughs> That's another b- can of worms. Let's not open that. <laughs> I I was t- it's unfair. I knew that would be a can of worms. We'll keep that closed. Um, but I was thinking rather Bauer sucht Frau. You know, like that's. Uh, I do top. quite like that actually. I do. That's one of my guilty pleasures. When when I go back to uh, Germany, I watch it with my with my mum normally, like the Christmas episode. See, Katya, I knew you were cool. Uh, okay, <laughs> does um, that make me cool? Really? Yeah, no, but yeah. Well, I mean, here and I, I'm clearly a judge uh, of of coolness. Um, Greg's or Pret-a-Manger? I find that... A, that, that no, yeah, exactly. That is a very, very British debate to have. I mean, to me, it's just like sandwiches, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I don't really get the class wars about food in Britain. I, I, I totally innocently like developed a poncho on four Weatherspoons yeah. before anybody told me that... <laughs> you can't. You I can't. can't. <laughs> so, You're not allowed to so like it. So now I'm like, yeah. I just don't get it. You can get a meal and a drink and whatever for like eight quid and... You know, they're not, they're probably, they were probably different places like 20 years ago. I don't know, but I, I don't feel particularly out of place in them um, unless it's in a place where you're like, okay, this is a place where you shouldn't. Like the, the centre of Leeds, I once walked into a Wetherspoons and I thought to myself, I need to get back out uh, of here as my feet were stuck, literally stuck firm on the floor. That's how you know you're in a good Wetherspoons is whether your feet are stuck to the floor or not, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's a key. So I, I'll happily have either Greg's or Pritt. You like all my students who go, it depends. <laughs> wow. Um, this is a bit of a chonky question, but we'll see if you can answer it. What's the biggest misconception people have about Germans in the UK, do you think? What that Germans have about the UK. Or Germans about the, have the UK or, or uh, people in the UK have about Germans? Um, Germans about the UK. I think that, 
<laughs> I mean, having just gone through beans on toast, I was going to say that food's bad because actually there's some very, very nice food to be had in Britain. This is one of this is, this, <laughs> and it isn't beans on toast. Um, but yeah, this is one of the things I always do when people come over to visit me. I just drag them around some mm. really nice like pubs and places where you can actually have some very nice food, and they're always always surprised um, yeah. at how nice it is. Same with beer. Actually, there's always this, especially in the German mind, there's like, oh, they all drink like warm beer, warm, warm stale beer. It's like, yes, but it's nice. <laughs> I mean, you've just described an ale. But yeah, so it, that <laughs> I think is one of the, the key things. And what about um, people in the UK? What kind of misconceptions might they have about people in Germany? Um, a lot of people seem to mistake Berlin for something that it isn't before they've gone there. Like they're always surprised <laughs> when they... You know, because people think it's like the German capital must be this arch German place, and it's yeah. quite the opposite. It's literally it is the least German place in Germany, <laughs> which is often the case with capitals, right? So it's not necessarily um, unique in that. But people always come back and say, "Oh, it was like full of graffiti," or um, you know, some of the areas were really run down, or or people <laughs> people were just jerry walking for example is a thing that actually happens in berlin whereas it doesn't mm. in in the rest of germany really so yeah maybe that's a, a misconception berlin is, has got this kind of almost mystical status i feel in in british and american minds and then people <laughs> come to the reality mm. of it and some i mean a lot of people love it for its um like artiness grunginess mm. otherness um but a lot of people are also quite disillusioned by it it feels like a proper city. Mm. Like that's the thing I like about it. It's like uh, there's no denying that this is a proper city. My sister lives in Berlin, and I, I obviously grew up like right outside of it yeah, as yeah. well. But I, it's not. If I went back to Germany, it wouldn't be a place for me. It's just too, too Berlin. Yeah, you could come to Munich. It's lovely. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. Although Munich is in many ways also quite unbavarian, actually, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It's where we deposit all the arseholes in Bavaria <laughs> in Munich. So uh, it keeps the Oberfalls tidy. Um, <laughs> are there any British things that you've really fallen in love with? Lots of things, actually. Um, scones being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you mean scones? No. Yeah. Um, the banter, I had to actually learn how it works and what it is because there, li there mm -hmm. literally isn't an equivalent to that. In <laughs> People always no. say to me, like, what's the German word for banter? It's like, I'm not being funny. There isn't one. It just doesn't work. It's and, conversation. And now when I go back and I've sort of <laughs> learned it a little bit over the last 10 years and i go back to germany and people sit there and literally <laughs> laugh out loud like you say something that a british person wouldn't even like you know yeah, bat an eye. No they, yeah they just carry on with the conversation and, and kind of chuckle a little bit on the inside and it's like germans slapping their thighs and going oh that's yeah, good, yeah. good one nice one and the whole conversation just stops <laughs> so i think the art of banter is probably my favorite british thing an understatement i quite like as well although i'm not as, not as good at, at that <laughs> yet I'm, I'm still very literal minded and very kind of yeah <laughs> blunt i do have to say that a lot of a lot of people and certainly my students is is like um quite good is about as good as you're going to get from me it's like if you if i say it's quite good it, that means it in sort of american english amazing outstanding but quite good about as, as far as I yeah know. that's probably something that the americans have actually that's probably the german influence there they they, they yeah. are much more um enthusiastic outwardly <laughs> about things <laughs> um final question what's your favorite beer can't you <laughs> um i wouldn't say i have a single favorite beer i, I prefer ales over lagers um so that probably places me more on the on the british side than the german side mm. um 
and like sort of lighter, crisper ales, anything that's sort of like a little bit zesty, lemony. Whitstable Bay is my my probably my favorite, but I don't know if people know that outside of the area where where I live in the southeast. What was it? What's it called? Whitstable Bay. Oh right, yes, no, I, I do know it. I've never had it. I saw someone drinking it once, like from a from a distance. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's not it's nothing like overly special. I just it's just one of those. If it's on tap, I'll have it. Do you have a, a German beer that you're particularly fond of? Um, when I'm in at sort of more the northern ones, anything mm. that's like a little bit more crisp like yeva if i'm in the mood for one but that, that, that is very intense uh, <laughs> yeah. but also like holston um mm-hmm. berliner kindle on occasion but that's a bit mm. milder so any any kind of like the more yeah northern varieties the bavarian ones give you a terrible hangover as well the darker ones is like anything that's got too much like malt yeah. in it and is a bit like denser my brother, he's got two kids and he came over and he was like, yeah, I'm on holiday. So he sort of just drank as much alcohol as he could when he was here. And um, he kept waking up at like 11 o'clock in the, in the morning and going like, you know, German beer just doesn't give me a hangover. And I'm like, that's because you slept for 12 hours. <laughs> oh, right. I forgot. But yeah, it does, it does knack you in a lot of ways. Makes me very tired. But yeah, excellent. Well, oh, Katya, it's been a joy. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for uh, Before me. you go... Is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to promote? Are you working on anything that's we should look forward to in the future? Well, I'm just in the process of finishing my next book, um, which will come out in April next year, which is on East Germany. Um, it's called Beyond the Wall mm-hmm. um, and will be a, a kind of new history of East Germany with lots of interviews I've done for it. And um, it's not a social history exclusively, so it's, it's also looking at the state Overall, it's kind of like Blood and Iron, but with more episodes of individual mm. anecdotes and, and kind of people's <laughs> life stories built in, weaved in. Um, so like an, an overall history of, of the GDR, um, yeah, but told from or with, with lots of East German perspectives kind of woven into it. Do you know when we can expect to get hands on that? In April, hopefully, if <laughs> if I'm quick. So I'm literally going after this call, going, <laughs> going back on it. It's, it's written. Um, we're just uh, editing it at the moment. So it's oh, wow. nearly done. Well, uh, good luck with that process. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss. Sovo Susamen. That brings us to the end of the show. We're off to start a fight with Greg Sausage Rolls in pret If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us out. You can also give us a star rating on Spotify, 25 star ratings so far. Uh, Five stars from all of you lovely listeners, so keep that up. Chuck some stars our way, uh, and that will uh, make us feel just, you know, a little bit better about making this whole podcast. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, or lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. You can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com slash DecadesFromHome and contributing to keep us, you know, stocked with beer and, I don't know, sausage rolls, I guess. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, and you can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40%German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss!